Hey friends, this is Pambe, your Two Scientists host. And for anyone who's been listening to us for a while, you'll know that David and I also help run Taste of Science, a national science festival for grown-ups. This takes place at the end of April in cities across the US. This episode was a real treat for us as we finally got to meet one of our many volunteers, Ankita Patil. So join us as we talk to her about neuroscience, women in STEM, and her love for eccentric doodles. Hi folks, this is your host Palm Bear from Two Scientists coming to you from the city of brotherly love, the home of Rocky and some dude called uh, Ben Franklin who apparently invented a bunch of things. Yes, we're here in Philadelphia and we're here to speak to Ankita Patil. How yes. are you doing? Um, I'm good, I'm good. I'm a little nervous, never done something like this before, <laughs> so we'll see. Oh, hopefully, should be fun. Hopefully we, we shouldn't make you too nervous. I'm just nervous as a person though, oh, I think. So. I see. Yeah. Okay, well. Hopefully the the caffeine probably won't help with that either. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, I mean, I try not to complain about the weather, but it's so bloody hot here. I think it's the, the British tendencies that come out to make small talk about weather and I can't help myself. <laughs> is it normally this bad at this time of year? It is, it is. But I still like, like summer still my favorite time of year. Because um, you're from Mumbai. I'm from Mumbai. I was just there, as yeah. we were saying. Um, and it was 15 degrees warmer there. And very, very humid. So, oh, yeah. yeah, any tan I got was just literally dust that was stuck to my face <laughs> the whole time through. So, this is pleasant, actually. You can walk around in the day. You know, you don't have to worry about the cold. It's fine. This is true. Yeah. Yeah. I guess everything's relative, right? Yep. Yep. Well, very good. So, on the subject of coming from Mumbai, how is it that you ended up studying neuroscience in Philadelphia? What inspired you to go into science? Right. Um, so, I think I've just always liked science. Uh, and so, in India, the system's pretty different, right? So, you do all of high school where you have all of the subjects and then you start picking and it becomes kind of mutually exclusive. So, if you do science, you're not really doing humanities, you're not really doing business, you're just doing science. So, at every point, there's like this fork in the road that you have to pick one. And I picked science for sort of my 11th and 12th grade. Um, once I was done with that, it was like, well, do you want to continue science? Do you want to do medical school? And I didn't. So, I just went back into science again. So, that was undergrad. Um, and I did my undergrad in biology. Uh -huh. And so we had a little bit of a bunch of different biologies. So we had some neuroscience, we had some microbiology, we had some environmental, some immunology, a lot of stuff. And once I was graduating, it just came time to pick something again. And I think neuroscience was just, it was, it was between neuroscience and microbiology, which are not similar things. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, both of which I really like and still do. Um, I just, I picked neuroscience, I think mostly because we thought that's where the jobs would be, I uh -huh. guess, or like more yeah. scope for um, the field in India, yeah. more so than microbiology, I guess at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I picked it. The idea that you might go into industry, perhaps. Perhaps, yeah. perhaps. Because my aunt actually works sort of in industry. She's a doctor, but she's now heading up like the medical side of a uh, cosmetic okay. company. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so she was, she knew a bit about like the application of neuroscience in her industry. And she uh -huh. was talking to me about that. So I picked. Um, it is fascinating. So it's not like it's a dull subject to study. Um, but then how I came to Philly, I think it was just... I mean, you just apply to a bunch of places. I didn't really know what I was getting into. Um, <laughs> so I really just lucked out. I really like it here. The department's great. 
um, yeah, I, I really did just luck out. Yeah. Thistle in the wind sort of thing. It just like <laughs> happened to be here now. <laughs> I guess we should point out that you are at Drexel. Yes, yes. Okay. Plugging the university I am at Drexel University. Of course. Yes, yes yeah. indeed. Uh, and so is this something in particular about the graduate program you like there? Yeah, so the one thing was that they have sort of um, different aspects of neuroscience that they focus on. Uh, because I was coming in with a really basic understanding of the system. I didn't know exactly what in neuroscience I wanted to study. And I figured if I went to a department that had a little bit of everything, mm -hmm. um, given that they make us do rotations and they have regular talks from all of the faculty and all of the labs, I'd find out better what mm -hmm. it was that I wanted to do. So that's why I picked. Um, but it was mostly down to... Drexel, it was between Drexel and Stony Brook. Oh. And so the fact that it was in a bigger city also helped because I'm from Mumbai. So it, yeah. I've never really lived outside of a city. Yeah. Um, and that was definitely also a factor, location. Um, but other than that, I think the variety that you have in our department was kind of what it is. That's cool. Um, so speaking of the neuroscience, tell us more about the, the project that you're actually working on for your studies. Okay, so mine's a pretty basic science project. My lab works on microtubules, which are basically structural elements that all of our cells have. Most of our cells have. <laughs> most. Um, and so it's kind of like the skeleton of your body. So it helps you keep your shape and the cytoskeleton keeps the cell's shape. But my lab focuses only on one component called microtubules and only in neurons. So it's a pretty specific area already. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have a different uh, kind of a lot of different projects in the lab, some of which look at diseases. Mine just looks at understanding, well, how do these microtubules get arranged at all? So neurons have specific arrangements that they maintain of these microtubules over that entire lifetime of the cell. And we don't know why, we don't know how. And so we're trying to figure out how, at least. Okay. So that's what my work is. So I'm going to pitch in with some questions from David, who doesn't like coming anywhere near the microphone. Mm -hmm. Because um, he says he's got a funny accent. Well, so have I, though. <laughs> That's a fair point. But his one's a, a bit more impenetrable, depending on who you speak to. Um, so he says, what cells don't have microtubules and why? <laughs> okay. Um, I wish I definitively knew, but from what I've heard, apparently... Um, what is it? Uh, I think... Something, something involved in malaria. Some of those cells don't have uh, microtubules. Ah, okay. Yeah, which is why I said like almost all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I just thought they were there in every cell. And uh -huh. to be fair, I didn't go looking into where they didn't <laughs> exist. So I wish I knew. Why would you? <laughs> why would, yeah, then the neurons. <laughs> okay, so one of the vague things that I remember. So I haven't studied microtubules since I was in undergrad, which is far more years than I care to mention. Um, and I vaguely remember that you had individual units and that can then assemble to become these long tubes. Yep. And I guess that's what you're studying? Uh, yes. Um, well, so I'm actually studying the already long form. Uh -huh. um, so, yes, you do have smaller units called tubulin. So they're tubulin proteins that then build on top of each other to form microtubules. Mm -hmm. So it's essentially just a po polymer of many tubulins. Um, but what's also cool about them is that it's almost as if you can imagine it being like a sharpened pencil. Mm -hmm. So if that's the tube and one ends the, you know, the writing tip and one uh -huh. ends the eraser, you can tell that they're both very different from ah. each other. And that's the same way in a microtubule as well, that okay. the one end is very different from the other end. Yeah. And so then when you have all of these pencil tubes aligned in a cell, the way that they're sitting down becomes a pattern, mm. right? So if either all the erasers are pointing one way or if they're all kind of mixed up, those two patterns are different, mm -hmm. right? And so that's what we're studying because in neurons, the axons tend to have 
the same orientation. So you can imagine all the writing tips facing one direction, mm -hmm. whereas the dendrites, which are the other part of the cell, tend to be more mixed up. And so you can imagine that if that is the arrangement that exists, there must be a reason for it. Yeah. And you can't mess that up too much. Yeah. But what makes that arrangement come about and why it persists over time, we, we don't really know for sure. Okay. So that's the thing we're trying to figure out. Okay. I guess for anyone who's trying to picture, again, we'll stick up a picture of a nerve cell on the website. Yeah. But it's, so I guess everybody needs to imagine like this big kind of bulbous bit, which is where the nucleus is. Yes. And then a kind of long tube, which is the axon. And then the dendrites are the kind of branchy bits at the other end. Yeah, the, yeah. so you can almost imagine, if you thought of like a, a really lanky person standing around, <laughs> and so like your head would be the yeah. soma or the cell body, which is where the nucleus is, and so all of the rest of your body would be the axon, so just like a longer extension mm -hmm. from your neck. And then if you had hair <laughs> stuck out from your head, those would be the dendrites. Very cool. Yep. Yes. Uh, so why is it that they they order in the, the cell in a particular way or is this this is what you're trying to understand? This is kind of what we're trying to understand. So there's lots of um, other things that happen around or on microtubules mm -hmm. and a lot of those processes are also direction dependent meaning mm -hmm. that again if you pull back the pencil analogy and you say okay I'm only going to move I'm a protein and I'm only going to walk towards the eraser end mm -hmm. right and I'm not going to walk towards the other end. That actually happens in the cell. There mm -hmm. are proteins that only go to one side of the microtubule or to the other. Now, these proteins also carry other things on top of them. They're kind of like trains. Yep. Yeah, so like um, it's a train that only goes one way and cannot go the other way. <laughs> so if you want to get from point A to point B, your road or your microtubule or your pencil, so many examples yes. in the same thing. <laughs> Everything has to be arranged in the right direction um, to get stuff from one end to the other mm -hmm. in the right way. And so that's what we think is why the cell has that um, arrangement of microtubules, but how it maintains that, which other proteins come in to actually arranging those microtubules and making sure they stay that way, mm. we don't really know. We do know which ones, but everybody has a favorite protein and everybody <laughs> thinks that protein is the be-all and end-all of the story. And chances are it's biology, so that's not true. Yes. It'll be all of them to some degree. Absolutely. And yeah. I think I think this is something really frustrating that we, we also experience. So our field is looking at, um, again, it's neurons, but we're looking in the lung. Right. And uh, quite often when you're speaking to people who work in the immunology world, they're still convinced that they haven't found the right... Uh, cytokine or whatever immunological molecule is like you say their pet favorite right um, and so for us to come in and say well actually we think the nerves are kind of important too they're like oh, nah. oh, they can't have anything to do with this what not are you them just about? yet no yeah and it's I mean despite like I don't know 30 or 40 years of fairly decent research saying that the, the neurons like if you cut there's a very specific nerve that goes to the lungs if you cut that nerve you lose like symptoms for asthma, for example. Right. And apparently this doesn't matter. <laughs> well, I mean, I, it's, it's tough because, I mean, we want to kind of embrace the fact that it is biology. It is a little more sort of interconnected. So mm -hmm. possibly everything's at play, but everyone also wants to get all those good publications out, which you need your one favorite protein to be doing the majority of the thing. Yes, right? or to get the money. Yes, yeah. or to get the money. And so I think saying, well, it's a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of everything. Probably doesn't sound as cool, but is likely what the reality is, I yeah. think. But you would think now, and maybe it's that more scientists are suddenly discovering the, that actually um, 
collaboration is kind of helpful to these things. So yeah. David specifically, he works with physicians, he works with biologists, and he himself is a mathematical modeler. Right. And all of them, so they, they have more opportunities for particular grants because you have more people working on more interesting ideas, right. I think. Right. I, I, I agree with you. I think it brings in more sorts of like information that you aren't necessarily thinking about yeah um, so we also work for my project we work with a, um, a computational modeler as well mm -hmm. because we're still dealing with like physical structures that have mm -hmm. to move in certain ways and are bound by physical parameters yeah so we work with them as well and that brings in a lot of information that none of us were thinking about like why would we be thinking about tension and like yeah. elastic force and like viscous forces and things like that um, I do think it adds a lot mm -hmm. and I think now we're getting to the point maybe where some of the bigger stuff has been found out and to, so to kind of get to the nuance of it you do need to have all of this extra information coming in from people with different expertise yeah I think absolutely yeah because I know from David speaking to the biologists that he collaborates with uh, they ask them well okay so how quickly do these molecules diffuse across the cell and biologists like I have no idea. Like, how do we even begin to yeah. work out how that happens? Well, the physics people can. Yeah. The physics people. Exactly. <laughs> the technical tools. Yes. Those people. <laughs> Those guys. They can the ones do it. who think they have all the answers already. Which maybe they do, maybe they don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so David has a follow up, which is what can go wrong with micro. My can't even say it now. Microtubules. Yeah. Um, I feel like half of my PhD will have just been me saying the word microtubules yeah. again and again, just <laughs> microtubules. Uh, what can go wrong with them? So lots of things actually <laughs> can go wrong with them. Um, I think just intrinsically you can have, so microtubules are really always in flux, right? They Not only do they have two different ends that are sort of different from each other, they also keep growing and shrinking, right? So you can have changes in that process come about. Um, which again is not a good thing for the cell but what you can also have is that instead of facing in the direction they should be they now get misaligned and are facing mm -hmm. in an incorrect sort of direction and that then affects so it's a basic structural flaw that yep. comes up but it affects all of that transport that I was talking about mm -hmm. of the train systems and all of that so that's kind of why we studied because it could be a really underlying basic mechanism um, not only is it going to change or influence the cell's shape um, but it's also going to start to have effects on sort of higher complex processes happening in the cell mm -hmm. so yeah things can go wrong both ways in the microtubule itself but also in how it's arranged in its network yeah so yeah. can you give an example of one of those kind of complex things that happens in the cell that might be disrupted right so it's um one of the um Typical things we talk about is called axonal transport. So axonal transport is basically when you have uh, proteins or sort of bigger structures like mitochondria that are being moved into the axon. Mm. So again, if you think about the axon as being a really, really long tube that comes out from the cell, it has to find its target that can be really long distances away, mm -hmm. um, which makes it pretty critical for the cell that it has to maintain its health over time, right? It has to be growing towards its target. And then once it gets there, it can't have the end simply fraying away. That end has to remain healthy over its lifetime. Um, and to do that and to maintain that, you need to be carrying sort of health components, I guess, mm -hmm. sort of things like mitochondria. You need to be carrying them back and forth all the way down that axon. Um, and so that transport is done on the backs of specific motor proteins. Again, these are those motor proteins that only go towards one end of the microtubule or others. Yeah. So if you want to get mitochondria down one way, 
you would think you need to have microtubules facing somewhat in the way you need, mm-hmm. otherwise they're not going to get there, and yeah. vice versa. If you want to get stuff back, um, and so if you mess up the microtubules in the axon, now you have sort of that transport happening in a weird way, mm-hmm. meaning it's not getting there enough, or it's getting there, you know, slowly. Yeah. Um, both of which can have effects on how that axon behaves, mm-hmm. and then how the neuron behaves yeah. overall. So uh, how can you translate this into something that is a bit more kind of relevant to disease and treatment? Right. Uh, so going on again about axonal transport, we find that in a lot of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, you do have axonal transport that is impaired, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of the research has been on trying to fix that. So, to, you know, how can you co- correct the fact that stuff isn't going the right way? Um, how can you get it to go back the right way? But the way we're thinking of it and the way people are now starting to think of it is, well, you can't really get transport to happen the right way if your railroad isn't oriented the right way, mm-hmm. right? And so slowly we're starting to find that this arrangement of microtubules could be involved as well. Like it's not just that mitochondria don't get somewhere or like yeah. any other proteins don't get somewhere. It's that they can't because the way to get them there is just structurally incorrect now. And so that's it's a it's a big leap so it's not a project that is directly translational mm-hmm. um in that i don't actually work on a disease model as yeah. such i work on a very basic mechanism but we're hoping that if we find um proteins that we think are involved then maybe that will be bits of knowledge that the applied mm-hmm. scientists can actually use when they're looking at axonal transport in diseases yeah and i think this is another issue that comes up in science a lot is that a lot of funding bodies are now looking for that translational aspect right. before they want to give you money right and uh, it seems like that can be difficult because like you say a lot of that discovery needs to be done at the basic level first right right and i mean even yeah we definitely have that come up when you know we're writing grants we being my advisor is writing <laughs> grants and we're kind of looking at the grant um <laughs> but you know there's always a component that he has to write about like where can this be applied in disease conditions and there's definitely ways it's just it's kind of a secondary leap sort of thing mm-hmm. like you know this will set this sort of research will set the groundwork for other sorts of research which will then yeah. help in disease um we have the same thing come up when we give talks in the department at a more graduate student level mm-hmm. um that people will ask well also i'm in a neurobiology department so a lot of the labs work on actual diseases yeah. they work on degeneration yeah, they work on yeah, addiction yeah. so you know it's a very obviously relatable thing to mm-hmm. a problem that people actually face um and so when they ask us well what does this mean truth be told i don't know <laughs> you know um but the hope is that we that by finding out we'll know if it means something and then we'll also have an inroads to fixing it because yeah. now we know yeah, now yeah, we know yeah. what's going on yeah yeah it's i think it's kind of sad that uh, you can't necessarily be doing science for the sake of doing science everybody wants okay well how are you going to make the world better with this right and i i feel like a bit of conflict about that because i guess we do get funded for the most part by agencies that are funding for human health um and so to say okay we're doing this science just because we want to know doesn't really align with a, a body that is funding you to you know positively impact human health but that being said yeah i mean science started out by people just like wanting to figure things yeah. out and even now like you know so it is a bit of a crossroads and we definitely feel that being like the few basic scientists in the group like uh, i don't know what to tell you about a disease right now i know they're involved in diseases so yeah. there's that you know <laughs> yeah they're definitely involved oh well, maybe that's enough maybe 
you can just to say that we know that they are involved in particular diseases is enough in it. Oh yeah, they're definitely involved in diseases and I mean people do target microtubules and sort of correcting the way microtubules persist in the cell. Um they do that in cancer which I, I was will about not to say yeah, yeah which I will not touch upon too much because I'm not the expert here at yes. all uh, but definitely like you study microtubules in cancer you study it in like cell division obviously mm-hmm. um and even now in in neurons and in um disorders of the brain you do we do know that microtubules are involved it's just whether my specific project means anything for disease I don't know just yet <laughs> but maybe it will yes Uh so David said he found recently that people don't necessarily know the involvement of the NIH in research who sponsors your research right so um yeah so my research actually is sponsored by the NIH is sponsored by the NINDS so neurological diseases and stroke the sub body under the NIH um, yeah so for people who don't know what NIH stands for it's the National Institutes of Health right um and again as an international person wouldn't be the best person to talk about this yeah. but you know from what i understand it's a it's a government body that funds a lot of science and research um primarily again focused on improving human health um and so they have a number of different bodies under the NIH that fund research for different kinds of biology and the one that we get funded by mostly is the one that focuses on neurological diseases and stroke uh so again when we do write applications we are writing them in the context of what does that mean for someone with a neurological disease mm-hmm. uh so yeah we do have to kind of think about at least the disease aspect of our work we don't get to just be like well it faces this way it faces that way <laughs> and that's <laughs> what it is you know so from a practical point of view what's an average day or week in the lab look like uh it's pretty variable i think i work with individual cells um and they're pretty they're, they're divas a bit they don't <laughs> do what we want them to do mostly and they you know you you put a protein in and you think okay this will fluoresce and i will image this fluorescing protein 5 hours from now and that is almost never the case uh so it's kind of variable um it means that i get to choose my own hours which mm-hmm. is nice because i get to do other things in the meantime but typically what it will be is i will go into lab sort of early i like to start working early um figure out what i have to do for the day usually you're multitasking with experiments which is a good skill to have good skill to learn successfully unsuccessfully but you're trying <laughs> uh to do it and usually i will sort of my work's not super hectic in that it's a long day but it's not like a long day continuously like there yeah. are breaks in between um yeah that's kind of what it looks like just go to lab work I'm done with my classes so at this point mm-hmm. it is just the research component of my PhD that I'm working on. Yeah, so. so this is something that actually is quite different between PhDs in the UK and the US is right. that uh we don't have any talk components. Okay. Yeah. So just no classes are You yeah, oh. you get launched straight into the research. Right, and then it's a 3 year PhD. Yeah, I think they they're starting to realize that 4 years might be a bit more fair. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Especially since now uh the UK is also starting to ask for a certain number of publications before you can graduate. This is something I find really frustrating. Yep, yep. Um I mean, we we have a publication requirement technically. We have a one first author publication requirement that the department and the school I think sets on us. Um they are a little flexible depending on I mean, sometimes it does happen that you know, a project just didn't get there in time. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of one of the struggles now is that to get something published, you have to have so much work that goes in. Not only so much work 
possibly a lot more collaboration which is yeah. a good thing it just means that sometimes that's beyond any one phd students time with yeah. their project um so yeah it, it can get difficult trying to get something published in time mm-hmm. but that being said we also get 5 years i think compared yeah. to the 3 yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was lucky enough that I got a bit of an extension at the end and then I had money saved. But yeah, th- three years is a hard deadline to work towards when right. you've got a project which, for me, for a year and a half at least or two years yielded no data. Right, yeah. Uh, and that's kind of what our first two years are like. So we have a lot of classes, I guess. Um, so we're pretty busy the first two years. We don't really do all that much in the lab. We're mostly just trying to figure out which lab it is that we want mm-hmm. to be in. So we do rotations that are usually a semester long. Um, find a lab that you want to stay in, and then the rest of that two-year period usually goes in just learning things. Yeah. Uh, learning the techniques, learning how to work in a lab, stuff like that. And then from third year on, you start to give your qualifying exams to become a candidate, and that's kind of where all of the research really picks up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. David says someone in your career stage might be smart to keep options open but what do you want to do after your PhD and he says I won't ask how far ahead that is uh it's a good question um i am i am still thinking about what it is specifically that i would like to do i do like academic research um to be fair i don't think i would enjoy industry too much mm-hmm. just from what i understand of it but that's not coming from any real experience that i have it's yeah. just from what i understand from friends who have gone into industry Uh I think I like academic research but I don't want to have my own lab. So it would be nice to just work in an academic setting. Um but I also have really been enjoying all of these science outreach or sort of things outside of the lab activities involving science that I do. Um and it would be nice to find a way to maybe do that a little bit more as a job mm-hmm. also. Um but figuring out how to make that happen um and how feasible the balance would be is something i'm still working on so yeah yeah i think i mean science communication outreach is definitely a new kind of um avenue for scientists to explore as a profession right um but i think we're getting there i think so so you know maybe once my phd is done we'll be in a better place to uh, yeah. evaluate and i think that's been a bit of an issue because i have to consider like am i going to go back to india am i going mm-hmm. to stay here after my phd um i don't know just yet because i don't know whether there is any real space in india right now to do academic research in neuroscience um i guess i'll figure it out i think there is i think there is it's mm-hmm. just fewer spots it's not yeah. like the us where there's you know colleges everywhere and labs everywhere and um so that's something i have to consider like do i want to move back and if i yeah. want to move back how much time do i want to focus just on sort of an academic career mm-hmm. uh that's yeah. yeah so it's a bit of a lot of different pieces that i still have to kind of put together yeah and i have maybe 2 years to do it <laughs> yeah. 2 years is a while it is uh, it is sure yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. um <laughs> So uh this kind of segues rather nicely into the fact that you do a lot of things outside of your direct research and yeah. one of those is hold out taste of science events. Yes. Yes. Um yes. Yes, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um yeah, so I I do a couple different things I think and I enjoy them all. I think again going back to why am I in science right it's only because I like science and there has been no reason for me to stop. Mm-hmm. I wish my story of why I'm in science were any more inspiring than oh, that. Oh, I agree. Mine's the same. Yeah. It's just I like, I like it. it. <laughs> it's not like I have a good like sort of 
you know, emotional story, story for yeah. it. It's just I like science. Um, and so actually Taste of Science gives me a way to sort of maintain um, a connection with other science as well. Like you get so into the weeds of like your own project. And I mean, at this point, I'm thinking of like one protein inside one cell type only <laughs> to the point where I can't tell you where microtubules don't exist, right? Like <laughs> I work on them. Um, but that's the thing. You get so specific with what you're doing that you kind of lose touch with other science that you still find cool. Um, and so that's, I think, what I like the most about being there because I attend the events as well yeah <laughs> since I'm on yeah, the yeah, team yeah. <laughs> so you hear about the science as well exactly you know? yeah um, it's something that's worth pointing out is that we become that kind of non-specialist audience when these events are going on right I know so little about anything outside of my field right I mean we'd even have talks from biologists and I'd be like I yeah. have no idea so the black hole talks yeah. and you know all the astrophysics that comes up Just, no idea what's yeah. going on so yeah mind-blowing mind-blowing yeah yeah so another thing that you do is you are a volunteer for your local chapter of the association for women in science yep. so how did that come about and why is it that it drives you to do it so that's a good story it's a story uh -huh. <laughs> there is a story there um so we had a seminar series on careers outside of sort of academic bench science um that drexel put up for us it was called careers beyond the bench and we had one, a talk from a lady, Eleanor Cantor, who I later found out has been a board member for our local chapter for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about sort of careers in consulting, sort of, you know, that kind of a, how can you get into that, what to, ex what to expect from that. Um, but it wasn't her talk about consulting. It was something she said at the end, something about, she was talking about how her life had kind of taken her through academic science into this consulting phase into then moving out of that and she said you know um, I don't know what my next adventure is but I think when I meet it I'll know and I don't know why but that stuck in my head and I drew a little comic about it okay and she also teaches at Drexel Medicine uh-huh it just so happens so one day I saw her randomly at the bus stop <laughs> and thought okay I'm going to tell her that I want to draw this comic and I did. And it was really weird because you could tell from her face that she probably also thought it was really weird <laughs> that some kid is just being like, I'm going to draw a comic on a line that was not related to your talk. It's just something you said. Um, but so I did. I, I drew that comic. I emailed it to her. I think she really liked it. So she asked to meet me and she introduced um, AWIS, Association for Women in Science. And they had a mixer event coming up soon, shortly after that talk. So I went. Really, really liked it. Uh, just started going for more events that they held and eventually they needed a graduate student liaison, graduate student and postdoc liaison and asked if I wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. which was like, okay, great. Which now meant that I had more involvement with sort of the organizational activities as well. Um, and then that's kind of how it continues. Bit by bit, I got into more of the program. So now I am one of the co-chairs of our mentoring program, which I really, really like. I like the program mm -hmm. a lot. I've benefited from it. So it's really cool to be able to now hope that you can continue that in an organizational way yeah provide a good program that other people can benefit mm -hmm. from um but that's pretty much how it is it starts from a really weird story and then you just stick around <laughs> and so now you're in the chapter but it is a good lesson in just doing the thing i've realized just like putting yourself out there and doing the thing before you can find ways to say no yes right and it works out sometimes yeah, yeah. i mean i think as scientists you have to learn to embrace failure and for something as simple as that, like the the failure aspect of it just seems so 
insignificant that right. is worth trying. Right. I mean, I got like one weird expression, but now she's <laughs> a really, really good. I mean, I say friend, but she's also like a mentor outside mm-hmm. of the lab and things like that. So I did make a really good connection from just being weird for a second. <laughs> it's not the best advice, <laughs> you know. Sometimes <laughs> it works. So can you tell us a bit more generally about what the Association for Women in Science does? Right. So it's an organization that pr- pretty much works uh, towards um, providing opportunities for personal and professional development for women in STEM careers. Um, and so how that happens depends more on your local chapter. Mm-hmm. So I've been working only with the Philadelphia chapter, obviously. And what we do is we try to put up events. So those can be like the mentoring program I mentioned, which is um, for early career women in STEM to kind of find role models that they can discuss their any like any everyday issues with and you know work on sort of professional development with them one on one sort of or in smaller groups but we also have seminar series from um women who will come in and talk about things like negotiation or sort of building yourself up as a as a in a leadership role mm-hmm. uh, things like that so topics that we think women find themselves wanting to hear mm-hmm. about uh it's a pretty small chapter i think it's a comfortable size in that we get a decent attendance for our events mm-hmm. and it's a nice group of people that tend you know you start to get to know each other yep. so that's another cool thing about it is that it becomes your network yeah um and it is really cool for students like me i mean even if i were from here i'm not even from here so it's even more mm-hmm. beneficial to have a network when i'm not from the city but it's still kind of difficult to navigate all of this academia and graduate school and you know figuring out what you want to do after it um it's nice to have this collection of women who all have different backgrounds but you know want to help you figure out where you fit in this whole thing so yeah. that's kind of what we do we try to make that space for anyone who comes to the chapter yeah, yeah. which is super important because given the statistics on the number of women who graduate versus the number of people who actually hold professorship positions is obnoxious right right and i mean what i mean i can speak to that to some degree with just like the experiences of my own classmates when we came in our my class my year is only women so we're all just girls it's phenomenal we haven't gotten on each other's nerves we're all very good friends mm-hmm. um, it's excellent but we all did come in with sort of different expectations of what was going to happen after uh-huh. right so we had a couple people who thought they were wanted to be academic PIs and have now realized that you know maybe they don't want to do that um and how much of that is just being in a lab enough where you realize that you this is just not for you like you don't like doing this sort of thing day in and mm-hmm. day out or how much of that is coming from sort of you know systemic factors like things that persist in academic settings yeah. that kind of prevent you or make you realize that this is not the place for you right um I think it's a combination of both. Uh I went in knowing I didn't want to have my own lab. Mhm. Weird reason when you think you're going into a PhD <laughs> like why why did you do this? Uh thistle in the wind. Uh but there were people who came in thinking we want to have our own labs and somehow or the other have sort of come to the conclusion that maybe they don't really want to do that. And it is something I think we need to think about because it is problematic then and it keeps this problematic space around for much longer than it needs to be. Yeah. Where now you know i mean with everything that's been happening in recent years like all the me too stem stuff and everything like that i think we need to create spaces that women can exist in yep. and feel comfortable in existing yeah. is not enough right absolutely so, yeah we're strong people we don't need to just exist yeah 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 for sure and i i am actually one of those people who started my phd and then towards the end realized i didn't want to be a pi right 
So I am lucky enough to have one of those staff scientist jobs. And as long as my boss has money, I have a job and right. I keep get to, getting to do the fun stuff. Like I don't have to do the managerial <laughs> bullshit. Another thing you touched upon, which we're going to go back to, is the fact that you draw comics. I do. I do draw comics. And obviously, and I throw them at people I meet at bus stops. <laughs> Uh, a podcast is a pretty crappy medium in order to <laughs> explain this. But how did you get into it? And when did you realize like you had this talent for drawing? Uh, so th- it was a big gap between when I started doing it and, and now where I do it a little more regularly. Um, started in the ninth grade. <laughs> My stories all go away. <laughs> uh, ninth grade and we had a biology class and our um, teacher at the time was telling us about eccentric nuclei. right? And so plant cells have eccentric nuclei, meaning eccentric they're not in the center because uh-huh. plant cells are filled with vacuoles I for like the, the play most. on words right and so that's where that started is that I thought oh eccentric nucleus meaning it's a little quirky <laughs> so I drew a comic on MS Paint I put a lot of effort and a lot of time into drawing a comic on MS Paint in the ninth grade um, basically on a nucleus that was a little eccentric uh-huh. which is now tattooed on my arm it's, a, it's a little eccentric that's cute I can yeah, show it sure. to the mic <laughs> let the record reflect <laughs> yeah, I think this is one of your featured characters in your cartoons, right? Yeah, I feel like at this point it's become an embodiment of me. <laughs> <laughs> I am the eccentric nucleus. Uh, but no, so uh, that's where it started, and I it was just because of the play on words. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't really do much more of it, I don't think, for a while. And then when I started grad school, those things kept happening. Like you ha- heard about like sympathetic neurons and then you thought of a neuron that was, you know, calming its friend <laughs> down because it's... But I think that's just what uh, that kept happening is that I kept finding these little phrases that I thought, oh, this would make a comic. And so I started doing that and, you know, what, it came to microtubules. There were things you could draw about microtubules as well. Microtubules break apart. It's called catastrophe, right? I mean, <laughs> the comic is right there. It's yeah. right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. They're writing themselves. They're writing themselves at this point. Um and so that's how it began slash continued, I think. Yeah. So at this point, I just draw them when I feel like it. Uh, sometimes they're not biology related. Sometimes they're just other things. Mm-hmm. But mostly they're biology related. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever tried to pitch them to anyone to get them actually published? I can't really make money off of these things yes. um, while I'm a student on an F1 visa. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, it would be cool, I think. Um, so now I'm putting into the universe, so this is a little scary, <laughs> is to have sort of like a mini, not a textbook, but like with all of these cellular organelles doing what they do, um, being eccentric, I guess. I wouldn't be like a felon for doing it or something, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, but I have to figure out like when I can actually make yeah, that happen. of course. Yeah. That would be so fun. Hopefully the target audience would like it. I, I would me. think so. I mean, I can think of a lot of children who would appreciate that. We we know a lot of... But the problem is that most of the kids that we know are kids of scientists. Right. And so, and so they've already been indoctrinated, right. essentially. There's like a predisposition at this point. Exactly. To enjoy this. Um, yeah, that's kind of where I see it, like nice stickers or things like that. But again, that's not something I can do yeah. right now. So right yeah, now yeah, I just yeah. give them to people or I just post them myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, just kind of building that up. And we'll see. Yes. Maybe it'll become a thing. Cool. I think we've been yammering on enough. So we'd like to say thank you so much for your time today. It's oh, been thank you. an absolute blast. As you're standing across the room, holding your beer. I even if I thought this could keep me down. Cause you know I'm some girl. 
it's an oops that then became something we published yay <laughs> that happens uh basically i was supposed to be we were doing this model of gulf war illness um just the only time i worked on a disease during my masters and we were adding sort of a toxicant and then we were supposed to add something that would correct the effects of the toxicant and the way we initially thought of it we'd add them one after the other so just you know um almost as if say the person who had something go wrong took this corrective thing immediately um i didn't register that added it a day later and we were like what to do about this but we saw that it worked you know it still did correct things and then it became well we can think of this almost as a therapy that people do after the fact uh so that was an oops it could have been a pretty big one but luckily enough you know we just said okay that's the paradigm we're going with and yes they're gonna ever be cuz when it's telling me lies there's no compromising don't you say when it's telling your friends it's up it's so well so, if you're interested in hearing more about our festival, head to tasteofscience.org and find out if there is a city near you. Each chapter brings you its own unique flavour of science events, so go and see what they have in store. This episode was recorded at Good Karma Cafe, of which there are a few, as we discovered, when we showed up to one and Angida to another. We're grateful to Brooke DeCaro for allowing us to use the featured track Two Timed Blue, and of course to Angida for meeting up with us. We'll add links in the show notes on our website, twoscientists.org. But if you want to see Angita's doodles, you can follow her on Twitter at Groucho Monks and Instagram at Eccentric Doodles. I've gotten back I haven't really done my grocery shopping oh, properly so I'm eating whatever is there. Ah uh, okay. I'm I'm so spectacularly lazy I don't even make chapatis anymore. Oh these are frozen that you thought. <gasps> oh no I'm not making them. Shocking. My mother yeah. would be mortified. Oh absolutely they're not very good. <laughs>